Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Man's spiritual situation is desperate. He has rejected God's revelation of himself and plunged headlong into sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin, giving men over to idolatry, immorality, and all kinds of iniquity. Ungodly, unrighteous man faces the judgment of God. To make matters worse, man's righteousness will not help him. As a matter of fact, man really does not have the kind of righteousness that is accepted by God. Man's righteousness is nothing more than self-righteousness. So man faces the judgment of God, and his righteousness is of no value. Nor will man's religion help him. Not even the rites, rituals, and requirements ordained by God in the Word of God. He cannot take refuge in the Scripture because it pronounces all men guilty before God. Thus, man faces the judgment of God, and his religion is worthless. Let me put it like this. Suppose a man were charged with a crime. He comes before the judge the prosecuting attorney presents his case. Part of his case is a videotape showing the man caught in the act. There he is, on film, without a defense. That's the picture of man as he stands before God. He is, without defense, caught in the act. Man is naked before God and has no garments to cover his nakedness. His righteousness will not cover his guilt and shame. His righteousness amounts to nothing more than a pile of filthy rags. His religion will not provide enough to cover him either. His religion is nothing more than a few dust balls. So what is man to do? Is there no escape? How can he make it through the judgment of God? He needs a righteousness he's incapable of producing. What's the answer? There's a passage of Scripture that gives us the answer. It's recorded in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Some years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the famous Bible teacher, said, I am convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the whole Bible. With that in mind, let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Needless to say, this is rather a full passage. There are a lot of the phrases and details in it that need explanation. Let me begin by suggesting that the subject of this passage is righteousness, and that all that's here can be summarized in three statements about righteousness. With that in mind, then, let's look at this passage and see if we can make sense and simplify it by just looking at three statements. The first is that Paul is saying in this passage that there is a righteousness from God which is revealed in the Scripture. Look at verse 21. Paul says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. That's the point he makes first in verse 21 and for several verses after it. The phrase, the righteousness of God, is not describing an attribute of God, but an act whereby God declares a sinner righteous. In other words, the phrase, the righteousness of God, means the righteousness from God. God is the source of this righteousness that is given to a sinner. The righteousness of God, Paul goes on to say, is apart from the law. That little phrase means that man does not produce this righteousness by the rites, rituals, and requirements of the Mosaic law. This righteousness is not at all manifested by man, but comes from God, not by man keeping the law. Paul goes on to say that this is not a new idea. He says in verse 21 that this idea that there's a righteousness of God apart from the law was being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There's nothing new here, Paul says. The law and the prophets declared this. That's rather interesting. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul spoke of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. Here, in chapter 3, verse 21, he speaks of the righteousness of God being revealed. This righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel, according to chapter 1, verse 17. But it is also witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
The little phrase, the Law and the Prophets, is, of course, a reference to the Old Testament. In chapter 4, Paul will illustrate how the Old Testament witnesses to the righteousness of God. The very law that condemns man as a sinner testifies, along with the prophets, of another kind of righteousness. How does unrighteous man obtain this righteousness from God? Paul explains in verses 22 and 23. He says, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This righteousness of God is embraced by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the first time in the book of Romans that Christ is explicitly referred to as the object of faith. Furthermore, this righteousness from God through faith in Christ is a universal offer. It is for all and extends to all who will believe. There is no restriction. It is available to all and requires nothing but faith. A man's suit on a mannequin in a store window is for all, but only extends to all who receive it. Likewise, the righteousness from God is for all, but it is only given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now, at this point in the passage, Paul comes to a verse that's very often quoted and known by many who attend church. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, the reason this is extended to all, that's the word for, means I'm going to give you a reason. The reason that this is extended to all is that there's no difference among men. They've all sinned. Paul explains that he means by that that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That does not mean that all men have committed all sins, but that all men have sinned. Every individual has fallen short of God's glory. That is the divine splendor which shines forth from God and which he communicates to all who live in union with him. All have sinned doesn't mean that they've committed all sins, but they all fall short of the standard of righteousness in God himself. Let me illustrate. 25 miles off the coast of California, there is an island called Catalina. A large number of men uh, have tried to swim from Santa Monica to Catalina. Let's suppose that some swam further than others, but all would fall short. Likewise, some men outdo others in their righteousness, but all fall short. In this illustration, they all take off from the pier in Santa Monica, but they all fall short of reaching the shore in Catalina. Now, Paul is saying... All have sinned, all fall short of God's requirement. 
And therefore, God will extend righteousness to all. That's the point that he's making in this passage. So this first statement about righteousness is simply that there is a righteousness from God, a righteousness that is also revealed in the Scriptures. It is apart from the law. But the point Paul makes is that there is a righteousness from God. The second thing Paul says in this passage about righteousness is that this righteousness from God is by grace through Christ's death to demonstrate God's righteousness. Let me repeat that. The second thing Paul is saying in this passage is that the righteousness of God is by grace through Christ's death, and that demonstrates God's righteousness. That's the point in verses 24 through 26. Now, let's look at it a little more carefully. As there is no difference among men, because all have sinned, so there is no difference because all who trust Christ are, quote, being justified freely by his grace, end of quote. That's phrases in verse 24. The word translated freely means gift, freely as a gift. It is translated without cause in John 15:25. Grace means favor and is used in the New Testament of an undeserved favor. These two words put together emphatically declare that justification is altogether gratuitous. It's gracious. By God's grace, sinners are given the gift of a righteousness from God. Wow. Let me repeat that. It's critical. By God's grace, solely his favor, he gives sinners the gift of a righteousness that's from him. This free, gratuitous gift is through, quote, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's what Paul says in verses 24 and 25. The means of justification is the death of Christ. The word redemption means to release on payment of a ransom. In the process of paying for sin, Christ publicly set forth as a propitiation. The idea in propitiation is that of satisfaction. You see, all have sinned, as we saw in verse 23. The penalty of that is death, and Christ died. In so doing, he satisfied the demand of the law that sin be punished by death. Many have pointed out that the word for propitiation is literally the place of propitiation, which was also the Greek word used for the mercy seat in the Old Testament. No doubt the Old Testament mercy seat, where the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled once a year, was in Paul's mind. But his point is that the propitiation was accomplished by the blood of Christ, that is, his death and that that is appropriated through faith. 
So the words redemption, that is to buy back and set free, buy back by paying a ransom, and propitiation, the word that means satisfaction, vividly convey the righteousness which is from God through faith in the death of Jesus Christ. To put it all very simply, as the hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stain. At this point in the passage, Paul gives two purposes for this righteousness from God being by grace through Christ's death. He says to demonstrate in verse 25, and he says to demonstrate again in verse 26. The first to demonstrate is to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. In this verse, his righteousness is the attribute of God, his righteousness and justice. The word forbearance means holding back, delaying. Prior to the cross, God dealt with men with forbearance rather than judgment. God was righteous to do this, knowing that his son would one day pay for sin. Thus, the cross demonstrates that God is righteous in his dealing with past sin. Some read this verse, and they mistakenly think that it's a reference to sins that were previously committed by people today. That is not the meaning of the verse. Paul is referring to sins committed by the people in the Old Testament. The second purpose for righteousness being by grace through Christ's death is to, quote, demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's verse 26. The first purpose dealt with the past, the second with the present. Because on the cross, Christ paid for sin. God can be both righteous and at the same time declare righteous anybody who believes in Christ. The death of Christ vindicates the righteous character of God in the past, verse 25, and in the present, verse 26. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a man who spent years expounding the book of Romans, tells a story of an oriental monarch that illustrates this very well. He says that that monarch made a law that certain crimes were to be punished by the criminal losing both eyes. No sooner was the law on the books than someone was brought before his tribunal who had broken it. The problem was that the guilty criminal was his own son. The king commanded that the law be carried out. Only he said one eye of the son was to be put out and then the king stepped down from the throne and said, Release him. He then took the son's place and had one of his eyes put out. Thus, the law was satisfied, 
and at the same time he sacrificed himself for his son. Now that is a picture of what this passage is teaching and what God has done. God declared that death is the penalty of sin, and Jesus Christ died satisfying, that's the word propitiation, that demand and redeeming us, that is releasing us from that demand. And he did it by not having one eye put out, but by having, as it were, both eyes put out. So, Paul is teaching in this passage that there is a righteousness from God that is revealed in the Scripture. And now he is saying the righteousness of God is by grace through Christ's death. That righteousness from God is based on the death of Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, Paul continues his discussion of righteousness, and he makes a third point. That third point could be summarized by saying, the righteousness of the law excludes boasting, exalts God's universality, and establishes the law. That's his point in chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. The teaching that there is a righteousness giving to man solely on the ground of faith provokes questions and has some profound ramifications. It has something to say about man's ability to boast before God, about God being God of all men, and about the validity of the law. Paul asks and answers these three questions in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 21. I'm sorry, 31. For example, he says, Where is boasting then? Verse 27. Based on what has been said about justification by faith, Paul asks, Where is the boasting or the glorying of man? Meaning, boasting about God that a person has some merit of his own. Paul answers in verse 27. He says very simply, it is excluded. Excluded literally means shut out. All self-glorification and self-gratification has been ruled out. It has been locked out. So, this passage is teaching that there is a righteousness of God revealed, even in the Old Testament scriptures, that it is by grace, meaning Christ died on the cross to pay for the sin, it is through faith, and that excludes boasting. Now, Paul asks another question, again in verse 27. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Again, the point is that by what law or standard or system can man boast before God? What kind of works, like the works of the law, would permit people to glory before God? Again, Paul denies that there is any ground for glorying on the part of man. 
But this time he adds that man can glory before God by the law of faith. The concept of a law of faith is striking. The term law suggests that faith is both the governing principle in man's relationship with God and also that faith is required. Paul concludes in verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Technically, the word translated conclude is the Greek word for count or reckon. Based on the law of faith, verse 27, Paul argues that man is declared righteous before God apart from man doing what the law requires. By the nature of the case, if justification is by faith, then it is by faith alone and excludes any personal merit. In one of his sonnets, Shakespeare speaks of the trivial things in which men glory. He says, some glory in their birth, some in their skill, some in their wealth, and some in their body's force, some in their garments, though ill-fangled ill, some in their hawks and hounds, and some in their horse. Paul says, there is no boasting, no bragging before God, because justification is by faith. Frederick the Great once wrote, when we examine what glory is, we discover that it is nearly nothing. To be judged by the innocent and esteemed by the imbeciles, to hear one's name spoken by rabble who approve, reject, love, or hate without reason, there is nothing to be proud of. Frederick the Great said it. There is nothing to be proud of. D.L. Moody put it like this. It is well that a man cannot save himself. For if a person could only work his way to heaven, we would never hear the last of it. Why, right down here in this world, if a man happens to get a little ahead of his fellows and scrape a few thousand dollars together, we will hear him bragging about becoming a self-made man telling how he began as a poor boy and worked his way up in the world. I've heard so much of this sort of thing that I'm sick and tired of the whole business, and I'm glad we shan't have men bragging through all eternity how they worked their way to heaven. <laughs> D.L. Moody certainly had a valid point. Paul then asks and answers another question. He says in verse 29, Or... Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? If justification were by keeping the Mosaic law, then in essence God would be the God of the Jews only, since they alone had the law. Paul answers his own question. He says, quote, Yes, the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, end of quote. There were Jews who taught that God was the God of Israel, not the God of the whole world. Commenting on Exodus 20, verse 2, one rabbi said, quote, God spoke to the Israelites, I am God over all who enter the world, 
but by name I have associated only with you. I have not called myself the God of the nations of the world, but the God of Israel. End of quote. Most Jews, however, being monotheistic as they were, would agree that God was the God of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The Old Testament, of course, recognized God as the God of all the earth. Paul claims that God is the God of all men, not only because he is the one and only God, but also because he justifies the Jews by faith and the Gentiles by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith demonstrates that God is the God of all. Paul then addresses a third issue. Verse 31, Do we then make void the law through faith? The word then connects this question either to verses 21 through 26, or more than likely a better suggestion is the issue of justification as being discussed and developed in verses 21 through 30. At any rate, does justification by faith abolish the law? The word law here is used of the Pentateuch, that is, the whole Mosaic system, and probably the entire Old Testament. Paul's response is, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Certainly not is the emphatic denial that Paul has used before in the book of Romans and will use again. The word established is literally the word stand. The doctrine of justification by faith does not make void the Old Testament. It allows it to stand as is. Paul demonstrates this in chapter 4 by showing that the Old Testament teaches justification by faith. The gospel vindicates the law in every sense. If law is the moral law, the gospel fulfills the law by leading to a life of love. Paul will explain that in detail in chapter 13. If law is the Pentateuch, that is, the Mosaic institutions, then the gospel fulfills the types and shadows of the law. If law is the Old Testament in general, then the gospel establishes these promises throughout the Old Testament of the coming of Christ and of forgiveness. So, justification is by faith, and that does not abolish the law. It establishes it. Let me summarize what we've seen. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, is discussing righteousness. Paul has made three statements about righteousness. The righteousness from God is revealed in the Scriptures. Secondly, this righteousness from God is by grace, and it's through the death of Christ. And it demonstrates that God is righteous. And finally, the righteousness from God excludes boasting, exalts God's universality, and establishes the law. In other words, in this paragraph, we are told that God is righteous, the law is established, and boasting is excluded. When God declares sinners righteous by faith, because Christ died to pay for sin. 
the practical point of all of this. And the point with which we started is simply this. Man's only hope of heaven is to trust Jesus Christ who died for him. Man cannot produce the kind of righteousness that is required by God. But what cannot be produced by man is provided for man in Christ. Man's only hope of heaven is to have a ticket to heaven paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Once a pastor sat next to an unbeliever on a train. As they engaged in conversation concerning spiritual things, the pastor discovered that this particular man was convinced that his character would get him to heaven. During the course of the conversation, the conductor asked for their ticket. He punched each one and continued his round. After his departure, the minister said, All the conductor looked at was your ticket. He did not inquire about your character. He did not care who you were, whether you were a good man, a moral man, or a criminal. So it is with salvation. You need God's ticket to heaven stamped by the blood of Christ. Suppose a teenager ran away from home and wanted to return, but was far away and broke. His only hope of return would be that someone would buy him a ticket, but frankly his behavior and his attitude did not warrant such a favor. Suppose his father found out where he was and bought him a ticket and mailed it to him. At that moment, standing broke, disobedient and in rebellion his only hope of return would be the ticket provided by his father he couldn't boast that he had earned or deserved a return he could only go home my friend the only hope of heaven is that God gives you the righteousness of Christ when you trust in Christ, who died for your sin, it is your only hope of heaven. So trust Jesus Christ.